hello and welcome to this episode of the lives and styles of old Hollywood. Today's episode is about Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman has not only played the female lead in Casablanca, but has also been the first international star, working successfully on both sides of the Atlantic, heavily influencing the future of both American and European cinema. Her naturalness and unpretentiousness inspired a new kind of woman, and her private life kept politics, media, and audiences busy. So, Ingrid Bergman was born on August 29th in 1915 in Stockholm, Sweden. Her father, Justus Samuel Bergman, was a Swede, while her mother, Friedel Henriette Auguste Louise, was a native German born in Kiel. Thus, Ingrid spoke both Swedish and German fluently, spending many a summer in Germany. Actually, Ingrid was the youngest of three kids, but both her older siblings had already died in infancy, so Ingrid was raised an only child. When she was only two and a half years old, her mother died and she was raised by her father. As Justus was a photographer, he enjoyed taking photos of his only daughter and documented her life. But when Ingrid was only 14 years old, her father died of stomach cancer. Subsequently, Ingrid was raised by her paternal aunt Ellen, who died shortly after as well. So, Ingrid again was relocated to live with her paternal uncle Otto and his wife. They already had five children, so Ingrid blended in. With no one around her, she early on learned to create imaginary friends to keep herself entertained, and she was keenly aware from an early age onwards that she wanted to become an actress, and she would often stage plays wearing her mother's clothing. Her father had wanted her to become an opera singer and arranged for her to have voice lessons for three years before he died. So, Ingrid was well set for an acting career and did receive a scholarship to the Royal Traumatic Theatre School. A couple of months into her studies, she was offered a part in a new play, which was extraordinary. Usually, the actresses were expected to complete three years of study at the Institute before getting such roles. And during her first summer break, a Swedish film studio hired Bergman right away, and she left the Institute to pursue acting full-time. Her first role was as an extra at age 17. Her first speaking role was two years later, in 1934, in the Swedish movie Mangprogrevin. The critics weren't particularly nice to her. They called her somewhat overweight and hefty, which might have been thanks to the unflattering striped costume, but they also called her sure of herself and with an unusual way of speaking her lines. Afterwards, she was offered a contract and was a working actress under the age of 20. Several roles followed, and in 1936, when she was 20 years old, Ingrid played her first lead performance in Intermezzo, opposite Swedish screen idol Gösta Ekman. This was an immense success and allowed Bergman to show her full potential. Director Gustav Molander would later say that he had created the script especially for her, but that it was Ingrid herself that made its success possible, nobody else. In 1938, Bergman starred in Dollar, a Scandinavian screwball comedy about which has been written Ingrid Bergman's feline appearance as an industrial tycoon's wife overshadows them all. The movie A Woman's Face, in Swedish, I will spare you my Swedish pronunciation, was a role created especially for Bergman, as she puts it in a diary. 
My own picture, my very own. I have fought for it. It's about a woman with a hideously burned face that is the leader of a blackmail gang. The movie would later be remade by MGM with Joan Crawford in the leading role. Before Bergman turned 25, she had appeared in 11 Swedish movies. And although they weren't masterpieces, they did give her the opportunity to show her immense talent, mostly in roles of complex characters dealing with uncertainty, fear and anxiety. There were plans to extend Bergman's success to Germany, and she even signed a three-picture deal with Ufa, the German film company. Pregnant with her first daughter, she did film one movie in Berlin in 1938. But when she finally understood the political situation and the implications of the Nazi regime, she returned to Sweden to never work in Germany again. Her talent caught the attention of David Oselsnick, who invited her to Hollywood in May 1939 to remake her Swedish success movie Intermezzo in English. Bergman, though, was quite unsure about the project, as she could not speak English so well, and her acceptance by the audience was not a sure thing for her. Actually, Selznick did share her worries. Bergman didn't speak English. She was way too tall for an actress back then. Her name sounded very German, which wasn't great back then. And her natural eyebrows were too thick compared to the latest fashions. So Bergman actually assumed she would be sent home to Sweden after the movie wrapped. But surprise, surprise, the audience accepted her without her having to undergo the typical Hollywood star treatment of getting altered altogether. Selznick actually ordered the makeup artists to lay off of Bergman, to not make her into something that she wasn't. In contrast to other actresses that were changed beyond recognition, Selznick this time was quite aware that Bergman's natural good looks might be a welcome change to Hollywood's perfect synthetic beauty standard. As Selznick had the direct comparison with the star cast of Gone with the Wind, which was filmed at the same time, he noted about Bergman the following... Miss Bergman is the most completely conscientious actress with whom I have ever worked, in that she thinks of absolutely nothing but her work before and during the time she is doing a picture. She practically never leaves the studio and even suggested that her dressing room be equipped so that she could live here during the picture. She never for a minute suggests quitting at six o'clock or anything of the kind. Because of having four stars acting in Gone with the Wind, our star dressing room suites were all occupied and we had to assign her a smaller suite. She went into ecstasy over it, and she said she had never had such a suite in her life. All of this is completely unaffected and completely unique, and I should think would make a great angle of approach to her publicity, so that her natural sweetness and consideration and conscientiousness becomes something of a legend, and is completely in keeping with the fresh and pure personality and appearance which caused me to sign her. Well, Intermezzo became a huge success and Bergman an instant star, although bearing hardly any makeup and being all natural and beautiful. This made a huge impact on Hollywood and the beauty standards. Basically, all journalists, critics, magazines and newspapers fell in love with Bergman. With her freshness and simplicity, her natural dignity, her maturity of acting, her arresting performances, her charm and sincerity, her infectious vivaciousness as well as her natural appearance with hardly any makeup. She was loaned to other studios and made several successful movies, 
always pleading for the difficult roles that no one would expect her to play. Like, for example, the bad girl in Victor Fleming's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And she also filmed another successful Swedish movie in that time, which was called June Night. In winter 1942-1943, Casablanca opened in American cinemas. Bergman starred opposite Humphrey Bogart. As we all know, the movie was an immense success and till today is one of the most revered Hollywood classics for its plot, the script, the direction and the actors involved. Although reviewers hailed Bergman's performance, Bergman herself did not like the movie that much. She felt there were so many other films she had made that were way more important than this. But she acknowledged the following. I feel about Casablanca that it has a life of its own. There is something mystical about it. It seems to have filled a need, a need that was there before the film, a need that the film filled. Her subsequent movies between 1943 and 1946, which were For Whom the Bells Told, opposite Gary Cooper, Gaslight, opposite Charles Boyer under the direction of George Cooker, The Bells of St. Mary, opposite Bing Crosby, Hitchcock's Spellbound, opposite Gregory Peck, Saratoga Trunk, opposite Gary Cooper, and Hitchcock's Notorious. They were all flat-out successes, critically and at the box office. But the years 1948 to 1950 proved to be the most difficult years in Hollywood for Ingrid Bergman. Bergman did Arch of Triumph, Joan of Arc, and Under Capricorn, but they were not successful. Mostly because of the scandal around the affair of Bergman and Roberto Rossellini broke, and the audiences were unhappy about it, to say the least. Joan of Arc particularly also garnered really poor reviews and was cut short. Only in 1998 it was restored to its full length. So, what happened next? Well, when filming on the previous mentioned movies had wrapped, Bergman wrote Rossellini that she greatly admired him and would like to film a movie with him. So, Rossellini invited her to Italy and cast her for his next project, which was called Stromboli. During production, Bergman became pregnant with Rossellini's child, which caused an uproar in the US. The US as a whole felt betrayed. While they had hailed Bergman as Saint Bergman when she played Joan of Arc, she was now seen as a powerful influence for evil. After a divorce from husband number one, Bergman returned to Italy, married husband number two, Roberto Rossellini, and made several more movies with him. Stromboli, as I mentioned before, Europa 51, Viaggio in Italia, and La Paura. And they all bombed. They were not received very well back then. Why? Well, mainly because Rossellini was no Hollywood director. He did neorealist films, usually with non-professional actors. And he used Bergman and his movies as if she were a non-professional, an unknown. He was accused of ruining her very successful career. But although the movies were commercial failures and were critically panned back in the 1950s, they are now met with greater appreciation. Martin Scorsese, for example, counts Viaggio in Italia as one of his favorite movies. Bergman and Rossellini inspired a new French wave of cinema, as well as the beginning of a modern cinematic era. Godard, Fellini, Antonioni, Abbas Kerostami and Nuri Bilgicailan are just some of the filmmakers that were heavily influenced by the work that Rossellini and Bergman did. These two were actually the pioneers of European modern filmmaking. 
But what some people might not know, Ingrid Bergman was not only active in front of the camera, but also acted on stage frequently. It was in 1940, when she was just done filming Intermezzo in the US, that she made her stage debut in the play Lilium opposite Burgess Meredith, although she was still in the process of learning English. Nevertheless, she was a full success and owned a stage. And again, one year later, in 1941, when she starred in Anna Christie. When she appeared in October 1946 as Joan of Lorraine, all tickets were fully booked during its 12-week run, and Newsweek called to the Queen of Broadway season. Her salary was a whooping $129,000, as well as 15% of the gross revenue. She was officially the most popular actress in America at that particular point in time. In 1953, she appeared on the stages of Naples, Barcelona, Paris and Stockholm in the Rossellini-directed play Joan of Arc at the Stake, which was generally very well received. In 1956, a Bergman performed at the Théâtre de Paris with the play Tea and Sympathy, which was an instant hit. And in 1962, she appeared in Hedda Gabler in the Théâtre Montparnasse in Paris – and in 1965 in A Month in the Country opposite Michael Redgrave in London's West End. In 1967, Bergman starred opposite Colleen Dewhurst and Arthur Hill in More Stately Mansions at Amundsen Theatre in Los Angeles, and the show ran for 142 successful performances to a sold-out house. Some of the last performances included 1971's Captain Presbound's Conversion in London, which was a commercial success, although critically not so much, 1973's The Constant Wife and The Waters of the Moon in 1977 and 1978 in London's West End, which was her last stage performance. In 1956, after her Italian movies, Ingrid Bergman turned to French movies. One French movie, to be exact. She filmed Elena and her men opposite Mel Ferrer, as Bergman had wanted to act under the direction of Jean Renoir for a long time. The movie was a great success in Paris when it opened, and it got rave reviews on both sides of the Atlantic. Then, 20th Century Fox approached Bergman to star opposite Yul Brynner in Anastasia. They did gamble, as Bergman had not acted in a Hollywood movie for seven years, and the audience's reception after the betrayal was uncertain. But in the end, everybody raved about a performance. Bergman did not only receive her second Academy Award for Best Actress for this movie, but also made a triumphant comeback with a major Hollywood studio. Next, she starred in Indiscreet opposite Cary Grant and in The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, all with great critical acclaim and box office success. 1964's The Visit and 1965's The Yellow Rolls Royce were solid movie projects, though filmed outside the U.S., only in 1969 did Bergman return to American movies filmed in America with Cactus Flower, opposite Walter Matthau and a young Goldie Hawn. 
unbeknownst to most probably everyone, Ingrid Bergman was also very active on television. In 1959, she made her television debut in an episode of Star Time. In 1961, she played a bereaved wife in 24 hours in A Woman's Life. And in 1962, she starred opposite Michael Redgrave and Ralph Richardson in Hedda Gabler, made for BBC and CBS. And in 1966, Bergman acted in a TV version of Jean Cocteau's one character play, The Human Voice, for which she was critically praised. Her two most demanding roles, which were the pinnacle of her acting career, were Autumn Sonata by Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman, who is not related to her, and for which Ingrid Bergman received many accolades. And the next one was the TV miniseries A Woman Called Golda, about the late Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir. Especially this last one was of significance to Ingrid Bergman, and although she was very ill during filming, she did champion through it. Four months after filming Golda, Ingrid Bergman died on her 67th birthday from cancer that she had battled with for eight years. Ingrid Bergman received a great number of medals, awards and accolades throughout her life. She was nominated seven times for the Academy Awards and won three times. 1945 for Gaslight, 1956 for Anastasia and 1974 for a supporting role in Murder on the Orient Express. She was also nominated for the Emmy Awards three times and won twice – 1960 for The Turn of the Screw and for a portrayal of Golda Meir and a woman called Golda, which her daughter Pia Lindström accepted on her past mother's behalf. But Ingrid Bergman also received a Tony Award in 1947 for a performance in Joan of Lorraine, as well as four Golden Globe Awards, a BAFTA Award and a Volpi Cup. Apart from these accolades, she received, amongst others, the Illis Quorum, the medal given to artists of significance by the King of Sweden, the Davido Donatello's Golden Medal of the Ministry of Tourism, given by the Academy of Italian Cinema, the New York Film Critics Award, and Italy's Donatello Award. So this was Ingrid Bergman's professional life, all of her successes and failures. But One important part of her life, which also influenced her professional career, were her relationships. So, there's husband number one, Peter Aaron Lindstrom. So, on July 10th, in 1937, 21-year-old Ingrid Bergman married dentist Lindstrom and had a daughter with him, Pia, one year later. He followed Bergman in 1941 to the U.S., where Lindstrom stayed with daughter Pia in a house in Rochester, New York, studying surgery at a university where Bergman traveled for filming. Later, the family moved to San Francisco, where Lindstrom would complete his internship at a hospital. Contrary to popular opinion, Lindstrom saw Bergman quite differently. He thought she was vain and absorbed with a popular image. He saw himself as the head of the family and he handled Bergman's career and financial affairs. He also was the main contact for daughter Pia when Bergman traveled. In 1950, when the Bergman-Rossellini scandal broke out and Bergman fled to Italy, she begged Lindstrom for a divorce and contact with Pia, both of which he refused. That same year, Ingrid gave birth to her son Renato, divorced Lindstrom according to Mexican law and married Rossellini, from which she had twin girls in 1952. 
It would take five more years for Ingrid Bergman to be reunited with her daughter Pia, while Father Lindstrom would stay bitter and unforgiving towards Bergman for the rest of his life. Although he has been quoted to have said that he lived with her infidelities and affairs because of the money she brought in, which to me does not sound like true love, and also, which father keeps a daughter away from a mother for seven years, throughout her teenage years, when a daughter definitely needs her mother? That is simply cruel and unforgivable to me. Ingrid Bergman's affair and later marriage to Roberto Rossellini was accompanied by many personal sacrifices and a witch hunt that Bergman had to endure from and in the U.S. It was actually Senator Edwin Z. Johnson who denounced Ingrid Bergman on the floor of the United States Senate, saying that she had perpetrated an assault upon the institution of marriage and was a powerful influence of evil. The public, as well as the media, well, actually the whole of the U.S. felt betrayed by Bergman, although beforehand she had portrayed prostitutes, a villainess, and women in extramarital affairs, the Selznick public campaign of building her up as a normal, healthy, unneurotic career woman devoid of scandal and with an idyllic home life backfired greatly. Ingrid Bergman had to flee to Italy and leave behind her young daughter to escape this witch hunt. But it was not only the US that accused Bergman, but also Sweden, or more accurately, the Swedish conservatives. The feminists in Sweden fully supported Bergman. The marriage with Roberto Rossellini had problems, though. Rossellini didn't like Bergman's friends and was afraid that she would return to the US and he was very possessive of her. He, on the other hand, had affairs, for example with Sonalida Gupta while filming in India in 1957. They divorced that very year after seven years of marriage. Ingrid's legacy and show business lives on in daughter Isabella Rossellini, who became an actress and a model, as well as granddaughter Elettra Rossellini-Wiedemann, who followed suit and became also a model. One year after her divorce from Rossellini, Ingrid Bergman married theatrical entrepreneur Lars Schmidt. They lived at Choisel near Paris and enjoyed summers on Lars' private island off the coast of Sweden. After 17 years of marriage, they divorced in 1975 but remained friends for the remainder of Ingrid's life. And Schmidt was by her bedside when she died in 1982. But Ingrid Bergman is known for having had affairs with her co-stars frequently. Amongst them were Spencer Tracy and Gary Cooper, director Victor Fleming, musician Larry Adler, Anthony Quinn, Howard Hughes, who actually bought RKO as a present for Ingrid Bergman, photographer Robert Kappa, and Gregory Peck. Interesting fact, Hitchcock's movie Rear Window, starring Grace Kelly, is based on the relationship of Ingrid Bergman and Robert Kappa. I didn't know that until now. Ingrid Bergman had many great friends. Some of them in the Hollywood business were Alfred Hitchcock, for example. Bergman and Hitchcock became great friends and they admired each other greatly. They worked together very well, like their style of working was very similar. Another great friendship was Cary Grant. They starred together in Notorious and Indiscreet. And what Cary Grant liked about her is noted by his biographer Scott Eyman. 
Grant found that he liked Ingrid Bergman a great deal. She was beautiful, but lots of actresses are beautiful. What made Bergman special was her indifference to her looks, her clothes, to everything except her art. And another great friendship of Ingrid Bergman's was David O. Selznick. Ingrid Bergman became friends with Selznick and his wife when she came over to the U.S. to film the U.S. version of Intermezzo and even lived in their house until she found a flat. The friendship remained for the remainder of her life. But what about Ingrid Bergman's style? All in all, her style, both in acting and life, was naturalness and unpretentiousness. She was different, she was unique, and she had her own back. No matter the circumstance, she did what she thought was right and always tried to be the best human being she could be, knowing full well that she was fallible and simply a woman, not a saint. In 2015, a Swedish documentary film was made by Stig Björkman, Ingrid Bergman in her own words, and it leaves behind the image of a uniquely strong, independent woman whose relaxed modernity was way ahead of its time. So this was quoting the Hollywood Observer. Above all, Ingrid Bergman was neither a Swedish actress nor an American actress. She was the first international star, beloved by everybody, acting and filming in five different languages, English, French, German, Italian and Swedish, and she filmed in various countries across the world. The Rossellini scandal the dismissal of her European movies, as well as the image of Casablanca as one of the greatest movies, put Ingrid Bergman's international work often at the back seat. But she truly was the first international star that influenced the future of cinema, both in Europe as well as the US. So, this is to create a life and style of Ingrid Bergman. As always, there are some lessons to be learned from this great actress of old Hollywood. The first lesson is you do not have to change to fit in. You can be the one standing out just the way you are, as did Ingrid Bergman. She knew who she was and she knew what she didn't want. And she had the good luck that David O'Selznick was having her back as well and allowed her to be just the way she was. Second, you can make so-called bad decisions. But as long as you follow your heart, and can look at yourself in the mirror and have your own back. They are your decisions. And this means they are good because it is a decision that makes you feel good and that feels aligned with who you are and who you want to be. So even though they may seem like a bad decision on the surface, they surely aren't. You just have to listen to what you really want. Three, beauty standards are fleeting. One moment, one thing is on Vogue and the next it is something different. So do not try to become something that you are not. Authenticity and originality is always on Vogue. So just embrace who you are and have your back and just be you. Be happy for all that you are and the way you look. And fourth, dive in fully. Ingrid Bergman was fully invested in the movie and stage world. She wanted to become an actress and she did accept challenges and opportunities. She even asked for them. She left school for an employment, filming an English movie without really knowing English. She got on stage in a live play in a foreign language. 
I guess she was scared like hell, but she knew what she wanted. She wanted challenges to become better at what she wanted to do in her life. So if there's something that you want to achieve in your life, seek the challenges, seek the lessons, seek for what is getting you prepared for this great, gorgeous life filled with the work and the things that you want to have and do. So I found Ingrid Bergman really inspiring, as I usually do with all the women and men that I research. So I hope you got a little bit of insight into Ingrid Bergman's life. And as always, I hope you are having a wonderful week and I can't wait to talk to you next time. Bye.